Wang Wa. It's Zach Lingley Chi Chi. I'm so popular. And last week we looked to foreigners in Japan as a way of re-philosophizing the world and embracing the beauty of everyday life. This week we're discussing the life and career of Marlon Brando and two of his films, On the Waterfront and Reflections in a Golden Eye. And I'm joined by my new favorite person in the entire world. Who are you? Uh, my name is Monica. Uh, I used to, <clears throat> my Twitter account was Mommy Milker's Mashi1231. Um, I am just a person who is obsessed with male beauty and uh, the world and life and um, Marilyn Brando. Incredible. What are you doing, Monica? Uh, right now or in general? You can answer however you please. So right now I'm talking to my favorite person on Twitter, somebody that I really adore and like feel very protective towards every time <laughs> somebody does say something to Zach, I just want to kill them and strangle them. And I, right now I'm talking to my favorite person about my favorite actor in the world. I love it. I'm talking to my favorite person too. And um, my, my question, my last question for you is, uh, why do you follow me, Monica? Uh, I think you're the only person besides Jack on Twitter that understands uh, male beauty and appreciates it in the same way that I do. You know, when when we both get obsessed over somebody beautiful and it changes our life and, uh, you know, makes us do great things and inspires us in life. So I don't I don't think there's anybody else with that uh, appreciation of, for male beauty on Twitter. No, I, I think it's something we definitely have in common and. I think that being so moved and touched and affected and changed by the aesthetic realm of men is something that most people are, are quite closed off to now. And yeah. between like gay people who have this like self-reflexive like hatred of themselves and um, like sexless women doing the girl boss thing as they uh, you know manipulate their celery men, it's a very missing <laughs> element in the culture to find people who just love hot guys. So I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, absolutely. And like people pretend now that they don't, you know, sometimes you hear somebody say, oh, I actually like ugly men. You know, I like uh, beer belly because beautiful men are so narcissistic, which is absolutely not true because beautiful men are usually sweet and kind and vulnerable and insecure in a very charming way. Uh, and, you know, people don't know it because they're too afraid to even approach them or, you know, just talk to them. And uh, if they did, they would find out that beautiful men are very, very sweet and kind. Yes, because one of the most crucial elements of being a beautiful man is that layer of a lack of awareness of the self. It's kind of that um, missing piece that they um, either don't know like their own position in the world so clearly that they know themselves to be beautiful or they have like um, a cultivated uh, ignorance about their own position. And, and I think people fail to understand that the truly beautiful man is one who just doesn't know it. Absolutely. And I feel like the world is very hostile to beautiful men in a way that it's not hostile to beautiful women. You know, people, um, you know, people in the position of power are not very comfortable around beautiful men. Women are very hostile to beautiful men because they feel like they're unapproachable and, you know, they would be mean to them or cruel to them. And the, the, a lot of beautiful men are completely unaware of how beautiful they are or the mm. image they project into the world, which is, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, you're so right about that. They're they're sweet, they're 
you know, a little lost and they have, um, Polly always describes like the beautiful boy as having like the autistic gaze of, uh, you know, being so prepossessed that they're missing something fundamental about the world. And so they are, they are beautiful lambs that must be, um, saved by being aesthetically recognized by people like us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. They, they must be. And, uh, you know, one of those beautiful men is, uh, who changed my life is Brando, I guess. Yes. No, I, I think me too. Um, I, I wanted to talk about Marlon Brando because um, he is, of course, one of the most gorgeous human beings to have ever touched the face of the earth. But yeah. beyond that, his... Um, the way that he cultivated his beauty into his acting and kind of gave birth to a new form of the art form of acting and his total um, disdain for the the movement and his relationship with his films is very fascinating to me and something I think can yeah. be worthwhile in, in uh, reforming my world. So I'm curious what your initial relationship with Brando was. How did you come to know him? So um, my mom is very into art and I was 10 years old um, and she wanted me to watch Streetcar Named Desire. And um, <clears throat> I remember that I felt very weird because when I saw how beautiful and Brando has this thing where he projects real masculinity and vulnerability I, at the same time. And he's masculine and feminine in a very fascinating way that can absolutely transform your life. And Streetcar marked my sexual awakening. I was sitting and watching him screaming out Stella, being so vulnerable and so so raw. And just, I didn't know what to do with myself at, the, at that moment. And I was in love with him ever since. I am obsessed with Brando. I moved to the United States because I wanted to go to Stella Adler school that you know he studied with Stella and I mm-hmm. I went to school for the, that, to that school for a year I watched every movie he's ever made every documentary read all the books about him he's just the man that completely changed my life and I'm so happy I'm having this conversation with you because I was looking forward to meeting somebody who is as obsessed with Brando as I am yeah I mean I am so happy about it as well because I think there's definitely a level of people not wanting to engage with his stuff um, just because of the age of his movies. But he has this timeless quality that in every single role he's ever taken, and whenever you watch him on screen, you absolutely can feel that like incredible pulse that transcends history. And um, my exposure to him as well first was A Streetcar Named Desire. And uh, that was his uh, first filmic role uh, and his big Broadway debut as well. And the idea of that happening, like, in, like, the late 40s, early 50s, um, and people being exposed to that raw level of sexuality is just incredible. Yeah. And I was, um, from what I know, the movie sh- was supposed to be only about Blanche, and she was supposed to be, like, a, you know, supporting character, not that important to the story. But Brando kind of uh you know revolutionized acting in a way that when people saw how raw and and beautiful and sexy and unpredictable he was they couldn't stop looking at him you know and vivian lee is a great actress you know she's an oscar winner and she had she was very troubled too very interesting to watch but honestly whenever i watch that movie he's a person i can't take my eyes off he's so raw and even the fact that he's mumbling makes it more charming i guess and um 
absolutely fell in love with him and his character. And it's just, he's it's just this force of nature. Yeah, force of nature is exactly how I would describe it as well, because the way that he was kind of brought into acting through the um, Stella Adler school of thought, um, he suddenly was uh, doing these emotional interpretations of the characters and uh, performing his role in a way that was more about uh, the sort of sensual and um, the sort of, it's hard to explain, but it's a kind of like just like the emotional depiction of the character that he interprets and that's how he acts the character and people have um described him as like a method actor which is not correct (laughs) in the contemporary sense but because like he does bring that like very like sensual and extremely thoroughly felt presentation to every character you just feel so wrapped up in everything he does when he's on screen yeah, and uh, I don't. I think it was Robert Zewald that said there was acting before Brando and there was acting after Brando, and he's definitely not method because, um, you know, Stella Adler's idea of acting was just uh, not only using your personal story but kind of using your imagination to create this character. He definitely does that, and um, you know, he's he's so overwhelming on screen. You can't take your eyes off him, no matter what he does. And even when he bursts into the tears, like sometimes in his movies, it just it just moves you in a way that many actors cannot do that to me. You know. <clears throat> so yeah, absolutely, absolutely amazing to watch. And uh, I love Streetcar. And then my other favorite movie of his is A Last Tango in Paris. Uh, kind of made me become obsessed with older men as well because he's so he's so good in it and so vulnerable and so beautiful that it also you know makes you feel a certain way yeah i i also love last tango in paris and it has a most of my favorite sex scenes ever put to film but what's so incredible about his performances in both is that there is like this like transcendent quality where you can see uh, the man who was previously there and then the man that's on screen and present. So he creates this fully lived in, actually realized person on screen every time that like you get a really tragic and overwhelming emotionality when you're watching him emote through those scenes in Last Tango in Paris. And yeah, and the way it worked with Bertolucci from what I've read is that they did not have a script. It was just completely Brando improvising in every scene and making up, uh, you know, uh, his monologues. And the, the conversation was with his wife, was her dead corpse, was her corpse, was completely made up. Like he just made it at, in that moment. It was improvisation, which is which which makes it even more fascinating. Yeah, because he was. Um very involved in a lot of the screenwriting of the features he was a part in, and he would often rewrite his own dialogue for um, a lot of the projects he worked on. And it's really (laughs) fascinating to me to kind of think of him as this man who uh, really ardently believed that his his acting was hardly art at all, but he was so emotionally in tune with these characters he projected that uh, even against his uh, sort of uh, wills there, he really is a moving piece of art that is uh, like breaks time in this crazy Evangelion loop whenever he appears. <laughs> Absolutely. And I feel like acting was difficult for him because he used acting. 
there, there's a book I read. It's called Songs My Mother Taught Me. And he says in it that his mom was an alcoholic and he was obsessed with his mom. In general, like this obsession kind of carried him through life and affected his acting, his life, his relationship with women in general. And whenever she would get really drunk, he would, you know, imitate farm animals to wake her up. So he used his acting to kind of reach out to his mom. So I feel like it was in a way painful for him. And that's why he never, he refused to take it seriously because it was so personal uh, to his life and his relationship with his mother. So, yeah, but the, the improvisations are what made some of his works absolutely legendary, like uh, in Apocalypse Now, that eight minute scene was completely improvised. It's completely believable that he would be able to do something like that. And I'm glad he brought up his relationship with his mom because she was um, a kind of a, a battered woman and had a very difficult relationship with her husband and uh, turned to rampant alcoholism. And Marlon Brando at a young age had to like fetch her out of a jail after a drunken rampage and uh, find her in this totally like bedraggled like aesthetically like raped form with like loose clothes and like her tits out and uh ever like since like that moment like he definitely had this fascination with his mom carry him through his whole life yeah he would nurse her back to life whenever she had one of her episodes and he loved her deeply and profoundly and he hated his father because from what i've read uh his dad was you know abusive towards his mother he used to beat her up in a fit of rage this is the anger that he carried throughout his life too. And when his father, who for some reason he entrusted with his money, like he, you know, let his father be in charge of his money, which, you know, his father wasn't very good at that either. So Brandon lost a lot of money doing so. When his father died, he said, if I could do one thing, I would bring him back to life and beat him to death. Uh, so very... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so he has he had very traumatic childhood that created this this force of nature i guess and probably those moments that are the ones that he was tapping into when he was creating his characters and um yeah it definitely explains a lot of pain you can see in his face uh in, in various roles he played yes the fact that he is able to emotionally convey uh, so many years of his uh own kind of uh, Oedipal urges and his very disastrous like familial relations and all of his pain and heartache that he summons that into his art without making it so obvious or making it kind of like a I'm performing my trauma like I'm doing you know I'm doing therapy on stage he does it in a way that's very naturalistic and it's really special to see someone pull their entire emotional being into what they do absolutely and i feel like like even with his relationship with women which is very strange he picked and liked women that were nothing like his mother he That's liked right. women of, he liked women of color usually you know somewhat submissive without personality i would say because sometimes i watch interviews by, by his ex-wives and it's just like you know they're, they're like not interesting at all so um he kind of tried to avoid being attached to somebody that would remind him of his mom i think 
No, totally. Um, he was specifically into darker women, which I find to be so sexy because you can <laughs> kind of like imagine him in like the forties and fifties, like this uh kind of like ethnically inclined, like hot, beefy white guy who just is like fascinated and turned on by like dark <laughs> women. I just love that idea. It feels like so uh, for the time, I mean, it was very pervy. That would be virtually unheard of. And so to see him like kind of like le- lead that life so sexually and uh, so openly is, uh, it's very, it's, I don't even know, it's very glamorous. I just love it. And he had short attention spam. So he, his wife would always say that he would cheat on them, always like women and men, and just like completely lose interest and in being a father. So he was an absent father for most of his life, um, you know, would abandon their wives one, once he lost interest, move on to different things. And I, one of the things that just tells you how crazy and insane he was and how horny he was all the time was a story that I read and uh, the songs my mother taught me was he, he had a fan that, that kept sending him insane letters telling him that she wants to cut him in pieces and carve his heart out and kill him, which would terrify most normal people. And it turned him on. So he replied back. He sent her a letter saying, I would like to have you in my house. Um, and he just describes how horny he was to meet her. And she comes in and she ended up actually being attractive. Uh, they had like, from what I remember, they had sex and he sent her on her way and she didn't get got to um, carve his heart out. But it just tells you how how insanely horny he was. And that's absolutely, uh, you know, that absolutely amazing yeah no because you mentioned on the sirens pre-show that i do on patreon that like you know what really counts in an artist and what counts in someone who can actually change and shape culture in a meaningful way is for them to be in touch with their passion and with their like ardent horniness and brando absolutely was like between like his um, you know, re-philosophizing of his relationship with his mother and between his endless sexual, like, energy, he was able to channel all of that so brilliantly. And you don't see anyone since him that is such a, a sexual creature and is so excited about bringing it to his art. Yeah, it's just, Brando is just is, you know, he's that being that is constantly horny inspired by his you know driven by his passions which you don't see nowadays because you know i feel like passion and love and this feeling of horniness is inspired the greatest work of art and the greatest adventures the greatest generals and you don't see greatness anymore because people no longer know how to be passionate about things how to be in love how to be inspired by beauty driven by by, by their impulses it's just everybody's uh, you know just exists and Brando was so great because he would fall in love. He would he was driven by his passions. He loved life. He loved food. He loved sex. And that's what made him so great. There are a lot of good actors nowadays, too. Like, I like Daniel Day-Lewis. They're probably Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. But nobody had what Brando had. This raw energy that this, you know something animalistic about him that Mm -hmm. draws you in and changes your life forever. No, totally. I mean, the sort of carnality that he was able to embody as a public image, 
it's fascinating to think about like this happening right at the end of World War Two. Like the entire country was kind of reconfiguring itself and imagining like what it would be moving forward. And so when Brando became a film star, um, by means of him kind of publicly exercising his sexual drive, like, it ended up shaping the entire culture in a really productive way, I think. Like, I think that because Brando was this emblem of of someone who can channel his uh, horny energy so artfully, I think that, like, throughout, like, the 60s and 70s and, and up to the 80s, too, the whole culture was kind of trying to do that as well. And I don't know exactly what we lost or or what changed but no one seems interested in doing anything like that anymore not even in acting but just in every medium and in the conduct of the day-to-day life absolutely and he inspired the entire generation of actors that came after him he was you know james dean was obsessed with brand there's a picture that i saw recently where they're you know in the same setting with a group of friends and just james dean is staring at brando who's standing next to him and that was really cute and yeah a lot of actors tried to be what brando was there but they couldn't do it because something is missing in culture and it's you know nobody has an answer as to what that is you know they're groups of people who say that you know we're we're having too much sex sex is too meaningless and some people are saying well we're not having enough of it but i don't think that's the answer i think just people forgot how to be passionate and inspired by beauty by you know uh by sex by their own horniness it's just it's lost and that's why we don't get actors like brando anymore Yeah, I think that really is the thing, is that there just is some void of passion. And when I was reading this biography of him recently, one of my favorite images that stuck out was, like, uh, in his uh, mid-30s, after he appeared in uh, two films set in Japan, he became, like, really morbidly obsessed with Japanese food and would just, like, shovel down plates of sushi, like, for hours at a time. And I just love the idea of someone who's suddenly so enraptured by something that they just can't stop engaging in it <laughs> yeah and there are like stories of him when he got really fat and he would lock his fridge but he loved food so much that like he couldn't live without it he would call mcdonald's and ask them to throw the burgers over the fence that's how passionate this man was about food and like <laughs> I don't know anyone who is that passionate about anything as you know as he was about sex and food and life in general is just as it's absolutely fascinating and makes him even more uh, you know explains his genius uh, for me personally yeah and among his passions I think like him and Elizabeth Taylor are the only social justice warriors I've ever been interested in. Maybe Andrew Dworkin as well, but um, I love his really deranged sense of social justice that he also became manically obsessed with and uh, started, you know, mutilating his own career to do these large-scale performance art pieces <laughs> of social justice. I think he found Native people to be primitive and close to nature, which is like, you can't say it now, it's like racist but the, you know in a way he found them like um just being you know uh without any constraints and like they were primitive and close to nature and he was fascinating by that aspect of them he, were, he felt very protective of them i guess in a way uh 
I don't think he's a social justice in a way that modern actors are. I think, yeah. And I I think that thing about him sending a native woman to receive his Oscar was absolutely amazing. It's just like a a huge middle finger to the industry that he hated. And it was funny. No, it's amazingly funny. And I think, you know, what you said about like his respect and, and interest in like these, uh, you know, cultures that are quite different from our own. I think he did like see that those cultures had a similar understanding of like carnal impulse and passion and conducting your life like based off like your futurist instincts to just, you know, move forward. And he exactly. spent a lot of... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like he's he spent a lot of his life like well, well I don't it was like some island nation I can't remember the name of it Tahiti that's it yeah <laughs> like he like he uprooted his life to go live there over and over again and he like fathered children there and like wasted so much time just like laying around eating in the islands because he loved the people and the lifestyle so much yeah and it's fascinating because he was just spreading his seed all over the world bleaching you know women like from (laughs) his first wife so i forgot her name but she gave him the son who ended up killing his daughter's fiance so his first wife he married her because she told him she was indian and then once he married her he found out that she was actually welsh and grew up in india and that made him completely lose interest in her and he like divorced her like literally the same year when he found out it's so funny yeah that's uh anna cosby and she was um probably the most insane of his ex-wives and had um like years and years of uh scandals with him in court where she was so morally outraged by his sexuality that like she could not stop herself from accusing him of being a faggot like on like at the in these court sessions over and over again and i just i love that this like scheming woman like had to like resort to being he's gay to get her get her custody yeah and she even in that documentary that i was watching yesterday she was she was like yeah he cheated on me with men non-stop and uh, yeah their son is probably the most damaged out of all his children and the ones that you know like i watched his uh interviews with miko brando who he was very close with but the son from his first wife was the most damaged and he ended up actually killing his daughter's fiance which kind of makes sense in a way yeah i mean he was really desperate and hoping that he could um allow for his own children to escape the cycle he had been chained to but um i don't really think it's his fault at all in that case what happened but uh yeah yeah, Anna was very mentally unwell and was a raging alcoholic for most of her life as well. So it, it definitely, I, I see how it happened. And it's his late life is very tragic. And you do see kind of like the shadowy consequences of this passionate like life uh, well lived. But at the same time, like in his last years, he did seem really joyful from what I've read. And he uh, would call his friends to recite Shakespeare excuse me, he would like, call his friends to recite Shakespeare monologues on the phone and uh, was like, con- you know, in doing his favorite thing in the world, eating. And uh, <laughs> despite like all of the horrible things that happened to him, I, I think he understands that he lived a good life. Yeah, I think so too. And um, he was very close with uh, Jack Nicholson and Michael Jackson, uh, you know, and just 
yeah, I feel like at the end of his life, he kind of found his his peace because he did so much for the world, like completely changed the way acting was. Uh, you know, he fathered so many children. You know, he had his own island. He inspired so many actors that came after him. So I think it was a, a great life that he probably looked back on it and realized that that he did good things and he is not his father's son. Yeah, I mean, it really can't be understated just how much power he had over the culture because especially when I think about that Sashin Little Feather moment at the Oscars, he basically uh, decided not to accept his uh, Oscar for The Godfather and instead let this um, very articulate and nervous Native American young woman uh, <laughs> speak on, on his behalf and the bravado of it, the cultural imagery, I mean, since that point, the only person I can think of that has the same kind of cultural lexicon in order to wield the entirety of the universe so well through pop culture is, like, Kim Kardashian. <laughs> exactly. Like, <laughs> that is so true. And that's after, like, years. It, there was an entire decade of him being a completely, complete nightmare on set, ruining movies, going completely over the budget. Like, fil- film industry hated him. They, like, when Coppola wanted to cast him as um, in uh, Godfather, the studios were like, no, no, not Brando, anyone else, but not him. And he actually made him uh, send, uh, you know, the tape of him auditioning for that part. And they didn't recognize him. And they were so obsessed with his performance that they let that happen. And after that, he goes and just completely shuns the industry by sending a Native woman to receive his Oscar. The balls on that man, I just, I'm, I'm obsessed. Yeah, because especially when you watch, like, the recording of Sashin Littlefeather accepting the Oscar, or declining it, really, it's really iconic to see her give that speech and hear her get booed on stage. Because you have to realize, like, how much, like, nerve and, like, masculine willpower it would take to decline that award just to simply, like, say, fuck you. It's amazing. (laughs) And how different the culture was because something like that would never be booed today, you know? No, no, it's completely different. If Marlon Brando was alive now, he would be doing the exact opposite. He'd, like, be putting, like, the... He'd be putting, like, um, Rittenhouse on the, on the Oscars. <laughs> That's what I think. I think, you know, it was transgressive to be, uh, you know, social justice warrior back in the day because it's not something that, that everyone was doing. So that's what Brando did. And I don't think he would be like everyone else today. I don't think he, if Brando was alive today, I don't think he was, he would be standing up and giving speeches about women's right or, I don't know, Black Lives Matter or George Floyd. He would be completely the opposite because he was a rebel, uh, you know, in his day and he would be rebel today as well. I truly believe so. I completely agree with you. I think that um, he did it because he cared, but also because to care was transgressive back then. And um, reading about like his uh, like day to day life when he was like studying and acting school and before he like made it big and and hearing the kind of testimony of his classmates about his behavior, the entirety of his life he has spent being a little thorn in people's side. He was like a famous prankster. Uh, He liked to get people angry and get them going and piss them off and cause trouble. And, you know, back in the, back when he was letting that Oscar get taken, that was transgressive. 
yes it was and his whole life was just a giant fuck you to authority you know he hated being told what to do and that's the greatest thing about him you know he just didn't want to submit to anybody's will and i think he would be so important today in a culture of like you know sometimes i watch people that i really admire actors whatever celebrities and just seeing them just being like everybody else in terms of opinions and whatever whatever they stand for kind of makes me upset and i feel like brandy would be such a breath of fresh air today because he was truly in his core rebel and hated authority to you know to his core it was it would be great to have him today yeah, and, like, what he was, like, saying fuck you to authority for was in order to flagrantly do an artistic parade of his perversions and deep passions. And no one would ever do any sort of, like, social justice speech at the Oscars or something because, like, they have, like, sexual hang-ups about their mom or something. It, it comes from some different universe that I just am unfamiliar with. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah and uh you know him just being a nightmare for a decade knowing that he could because that's how good he was he you know completely went over budget in every movie that he did even the movie that he directed uh that uh you know he took over from Stanley Kubrick with Jack Nicholson they completely went over the budget his first cut was four hours long uh you know destroyed that movie like nobody wanted to work with him but they had to because of how great he was and i feel like you can only show the world middle finger if you are as good at what you do as brando was oh that's so true like unless you actually have the stuff like unless you actually have the shit to back it up with no one cares if you're being like transgressive then you're just being annoying you actually have to have like some amount of talent and perspective and original like leeway into the world before you can be a little bitch yes yes and nobody cares if you mad at your dad like you know some bratty leftists today they're mad at their dad they don't want to go to work because it sucks and the world owes you something no you can only do it if you are as brilliant as great and uh amazing at what you do as brando was he could do it because he was brando yeah, and I mean, he could also do anything because he was so sexy. Like, um, yeah. I mean, if that man walked into my house or, like, if, if I was at, like, a train station, he said, it, he was just like, give me all of your money, everything in your house. Um, give me, like, the clothes off your back. I would do absolutely anything in two seconds for him. Absolutely. And the thing about Rams that I love the most, which is weird, is his mouth. He had a very sensual mouth, and that's the very underrated feature because people usually talk about his great Roman nose and his phenomenal jawline and just his facial structure and his great body. But his mouth was so sensual that just one look at that, and I would like sell clothes on my back, move to LA, uh, destroy my <laughs> life just to, be, <laughs> just to be with him. No, his mouth is, I mean, that's the the oral stage, right? Like, that's a, you know, it's very, the mouth is very important in in combination with his eyes. Like, when he, like, grins or decides to let, make some emotion less opaque and, and give it to you, and you see the entire muscles of his face move, it is unlike anything else I have ever seen in, in any actor. 
Absolutely. And he had a face that would allow him to be, uh, you know, a Roman general when he played Mark Antony and also just a working class Rube, uh, very earthy and proud of his virility like he was when he played Stanley Kowalski. Like that's the face, the type of face that he got. It's it's absolutely amazing because I don't know anybody who had who could play both an aristocrat and a working class person and be believable in both. Like Daniel did Deleuze- he played a Japanese man as well. Yeah. It's like it's the greatest face ever. Like Daniel Deleuze is great. He has very you know refined aristocratic face and usually plays sort of those characters. Brando could do both. You know he like when when I see him as Mark Antony, uh, you know doing Shakespeare, I completely believe that he could be Mark Antony. And when I see him playing Stanley Kowalski, this you know this sexy brutish force of nature, I can also believe that he could be that as well. Yeah, I totally buy everything that he's selling every time. And it's also, you know, important to think about how he really didn't give a fuck about most of these movies that he was doing. He really did not, like, respect the cinematic medium at all. And it really wasn't until his later life that he even uh, remembered himself fondly. And he really was, like, doing this as a job. He showed up for work um, and then channeled his emotions in the way he knew how and then completely submitted himself in a lot of his best roles to the sort of overarching like fascist view of these directors and uh, screenwriters. Yeah, he hated working with most of them. And the thing that he did later in life was like he would, he would always be late to work. And because production is expensive, he had to blame it on somebody. So he would find like something wrong with the script. Uh, you know, I was I was I was late to work because I looked at the script and I said that it doesn't work. Completely nightmare to work with. Didn't respect the craft. And I feel like he was more of a theater person. And he if he kept doing theater uh, he probably would have been much more content and happy with his craft. Yeah. Because, I think you know, so, too. Mm-hmm. Because you kind of directly interact with the audience and you can improvise, which is something that he loved to do. You don't have to submit to authority in the moment because the stage is yours. The, view, the, the, the viewer is, is yours. You know, everything is in your hands and you are completely uh, in charge of what you're doing. But he was too big for theater. I feel like somebody with that type of charisma and that type of sexuality and talent should have been shared with the world, which is what mm-hmm. happened. I just love that this all started because, um, you know, the poofiest queen of all time, Tennessee Williams, who is, like, gayer than RuPaul, like, wrote, like, the horniest, like, I know that Tennessee Williams was, like, typing that out with one hand when he was writing about Stanley Kowalski in Secret Desire. And he totally imagined himself to be Blanche Dubois. Like, yes, I, he I, did. I, because Blanche <laughs> Dubois is literally all gay men. <laughs> yes. And like we're putting I, the la- we're putting the lampshade on reality. <laughs> <laughs> I am, and I love Vivian Lee. I think she was beautiful and Gone with the Wind, and she is a great actress. Absolutely broken in a way that kind of like projects projects itself on the screen and makes her role so great. But she, like whenever I watch the movie, I just uh, Stanley is the one that I look for look out for because of how insanely sexy and raw and unpredictable he was like in every scene you're, you're not sure whether he's gonna hit you or kiss you that's how that's how unpredictable brandon was in his acting yeah no so true 
And um, it's so funny that, like, still Adler was furious with uh, Brando when, like, they met after a few months and she noticed that he had taken up weightlifting and was like, you're never going to be able to play Shakespeare now. What have you done to yourself, you brute? And then he shows up and does the performance of all performances in Streetcar Named Desire where you completely understand this shocking worldview of Stella, you know, because she's so enchained to this man because the audience is too, and so am I. Seeing him sweating and looking with so much articulation in his face, I just can't get over it. Yeah, and if I was his wife, I would have never, uh, you know, leave him because I I would be so obsessed with his beauty uh, and he probably was a great lover, uh, I'm assuming. Yeah, just, I, like, it literally marked my sexual awakening. I felt uncomfortable watching it next to my mom that I had to walk out every few minutes because I was obsessed with how beautiful he was. And that beauty changed my life forever. Oh, amazing. I remember showing this to my ex-boyfriend who had never even seen a, a black and white movie before. And I remember him kind of getting a little, like, sweaty, like, next to me, being like, oh, my God, who is that? And I just, I I love that this is, like, the vision of some gay man who just, like, imagined, you know, in such perfection, masculinity, and uh, no one can do it better. It will never be done better. Do you think Tennessee Williams imagined him to be completely this way, or was part of, was Brando just bringing his own r- rawness into the role? Well, I think that before um, before Brando took the part when it debuted, I think that um, Stanley Kowalski was much more of a kind of hollow, you know, hollow menace and villain, like, in, in the distance. But because of, you know, Brando's corporeal, like, fleshy, like, just lived-in performance, you end up, it completely changes the face and theme of the play. Yeah, uh, I think it was, again, Robert Duval that said that he made you sympathize with Kowalski. You know, you, you kind of see him and you were so fascinated by him that you don't see him as the villain anymore, which is something that like only somebody like Brando could do to a character. Yeah, only him, really only him. And just his entire filmic career is power, even in his worst roles, even in the, the biggest flops, Every single time he's on screen, you are fascinated and enshrined in whatever it is he's putting in front of you. Absolutely. He is the only actor who could be next to Jack Nicholson and still outshine him and be more charismatic and uh, than, than Jack Nicholson. Because I always thought it was impossible because Jack is so enigmatic and Drosian uh, and he, he has so much charisma. And when you see him next to Brando, Brando just outshines him. It's it's absolutely incredible. I know that's all I can say. Just absolutely incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's literally all I can say about Brando because how because of how obsessed I am with, with that man.
in comparing the kind of uh, beautiful garbage and fully fleshed out life of uh, Marlon Brando as the person, uh, I wanted to talk about these two films, um, one being On the Waterfront from 1954, uh, directed by Elia Kazan, and Reflections of, oh, sorry, Reflections in a Golden Eye from 1967, uh, directed by uh, John Huston. And I picked these two movies because I thought that On the Waterfront is kind of emblematic of Brando in his full acting power and reflections in a golden eye is this uh, image of Brando in this like kind of tragic warped form. It's like, kind of like the anti-Brando almost. So uh, wh- what did you think of these? I know you've seen them before, but revisiting them, what, what was kind of going through your mind with these two? Uh, I always like on the, on the Waterfront, but I felt like our Reflections in the Golden Eye was really underrated because it's one of the greatest branded performances and completely opposite. You know, he managed to play the complete opposite, opposite character to Stanley Kowalski and still uh, be believable in it and, um, you know, draw you in. It was great. And I also love Elizabeth Taylor. And she, I, thought, I thought she was a perfect combination of glamorous and vulgar. And only Elizabeth could play that role and, uh, you know, make sense. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense to me as well. Like, these are two different impressions of of Brando, like, on the waterfront being kind of uh, one of the most, like, seminal and uh, easily recognizable of him. And then Reflections in a Golden Eye is kind of the, like, anti-universe impression of him. And uh, when you put them next to each other, you can really see, like, the breadth and power of his acting. Yes. And, um, you know, uh, Terry Malloy and Stanley Kowalski, they are working class, they're earthy, they're proud of who they are, they're comfortable in their skin. Uh, I mean, Terry Malloy, obviously, you know, he did not reach his potential, but it's still a man who is comfortable with who he are. And then you have a character and reflections in a golden eye who is so uncomfortable in his own skin and he has to pretend to be somebody else, um, you know, has to project this fictional image uh, that would, you know, if he reveals who he are, would break in a thousand pieces. And there's a scene where, uh, you know, in the beginning of the movie where he's working out, he's like kind of pudgy and sweaty and not the brand that we know. And then he goes to the mirror to see, if, you know, the definitions in his arm changed a little. And it was so amazing to see Brando to be that different from the roles he previously played. Yes, I was also thinking so much about that scene because you get this uh, scene of him really straining to lift the weights as his, you know, nagging, shrew, vulgar, beautiful wife is uh, calling to him downstairs. And uh, then watching him, like, kind of slap himself in the gut and move his arms around, I was uh, possessed by both tragedy and longing and this, uh, you know, I I mentioned earlier, like, Brando's performances give this big sense of time and, like, a a fully lived-in life, and you could see the man that he once was when he's looking in the mirror. It's like, yeah, it's there's continuity to all his movies. And, you know, from Stanley Kowalski to this man who is uneasy in his skin and alienated from his physical self and just, you know, watching him, um, you know, talk to mumbles things to himself in the mirror because he wants to project a certain image, something that Stanley Kowalski would never do because he was just a being, you know. It's amazing. It's amazing to see this continuity and it makes sense to you. It so does. Um, so let's talk a little bit about On the Waterfront. Um, this is a movie about Terry Malloy, a 
former prize fighter who is taken into the world of the longshoremen unions um, and is kind of used as a tool um, by his brother and the union bosses and the movie is ultimately a struggle of him to uh, pursue morality and it features a, a very uh, violent and kind of harsh world where he has to ultimately surmount so much uh, noise around him in order to actualize himself as a powerful moral man. Absolutely. And it features moralizing Catholic priest uh, played by Carl Walden. I was distracted by his nose the entire movie, if I'm being honest. <laughs> He's in a in streetcar as well. Yeah, and he he actually won Oscar for streetcar. He didn't win for on the waterfront, but um, yeah, it's just uh, it's amazing to see him go from Stanley Kowalski to Terry Malloy, this character who's completely lost and had to always care for others, including his brother, and never actually got to uh, you know, form his own morality, uh, you know do things that uh, he wanted to do because he was always led on by by others. And finally, he gains his voice and manages to break out of this cycle of, uh, I don't even know, like, just become who he are and find himself and find his voice in this world. Yeah, lately on the show, I've been thinking a lot about self-actualization and about like the creation of the interior universe. And this movie details... Uh, the creation of Terry Malloy's in such painstaking detail, you really get a sense for this whole man's moral development. And the kind of contextual background that um, Elia Kazan had been a part of the um, literal, not podcastual, Red Scare and had uh, outed a lot of his uh, fellow filmmakers and friends as uh, members of like the communist movement and having done that, he was uh, quite ostracized by a lot of the people he knew. So he then turned to make this film uh, about a, a man who turns against uh, a culture that's wrong and, and makes a choice over time uh, in order to uh, be correct, despite the harsh and overwhelming sort of uh, pressure against him. He was, yeah, he was a former communist and he was hated in Hollywood for, you know, betraying his friends. Arson Wells uh, said something really nasty about, it, uh, about him too. And it kind of makes, makes sense because in the moment you do the right thing and nobody understands why, why you're doing it and explains uh, the, the fight within that uh, uh, he probably had when he did what he did. And you can totally see it in Terry Malloy as well, because he's basically betraying everybody he knew, including his own brother and people that he grew up with to do the right thing, which is the hardest thing in the world. That's right. And whether or not Kazan was like right or wrong about what he did, like I, I respect like the, uh, it, it really does take a lot of gall in order to, separate yourself from everyone you know to you know be to, to do any sort of thing at all and and to see that process in kind of slow motion in this film is is really beautiful and i just find it so touching that both like kazan was kind of uh summoning his own emotional demons into this movie and then you know brando is playing off so much of his own you know sexual neuroses and his nightmare relationship with his family so it creates this very emotional product for the whole film 
Absolutely. And I like what you said about Rando and his, you know, own relationship with his family and all of that playing into the part. Uh, because in that scene, when he talks to his brother in the car, you know, the, the famous, I could have been a contender scene. You kind of see him saying that to his parents, you know, if mm-hmm. only you could have, if only you could have done this for me, I wouldn't have been where I am today. And I could have done differently in life. And it was, it was obviously that scene inspired so many great, you know, scenes and in movies, including Taxi Driver and many others. And yeah, definitely something that he channeled. I feel like his relationship with his dad, his relationship, his strange relationships with his dad and his, you know, his love for his broken mother. And he channeled all of that to play that scene, which completely, you know, transforms uh, your life as well when you watch it. Oh, it does. I mean, this is one of the scenes of Hollywood. Th- that yeah. scene in the, in the taxi is one of the few moments in cinema where you can actively feel history being made and changed. And it's, it's such a small scene. It's in a soundstage and just these two people sitting together and having a very tense and potentially violent conversation. But the entire reality of this scene rests in Marlon Brando's pained face and his voice as he is vaguely looking down and talking about this lost possibility for himself. And that is beautiful to me. And I like how subtle it was because it was so easy to overact in that scene because it's so much, you know, Mm. you basically just realize that your brother is driving you to your certain death and that's a brother who you know made you give up on your passion and in that moment he could have overreact overacted but it was so subtle and beautiful and raw and natural and that's i think what made actors rethink their approach to acting in general because usually they were more like theatrical and it was like ah and oh whatever and in that moment he completely changes what acting was supposed to be Oh, yes, he did. And I think that was tangibly felt immediately upon arrival because audiences were spellbound after seeing this happen because, um, I mean, Streetcar was a major revelation to see something so honestly put on the screen that is inherently sexual and kind of horrific in its honesty. And then to see that in a narrative that is um, not so apocalyptic as streetcar is and and this is a story of like crucifixion and and being able to uh be a martyr so that you can make something good for the world um i think this really resonated with people in a way that little else is capable of doing yes and it was done beautifully and uh you know that yeah i can totally i can totally see it and that scene completely yeah, every time you, you you listen to an interview of a famous actor and they ask them what scene changed your life and they always mention that scene, I could have been a contender. That's right. And I mean, it, it's the defining moment of his career and he would go go back to it and think about it a lot as it, it goes on. But in general, like the, the rest of the film uh, really helps to mount like how severe it is for him to be making this choice to go against everything he knows. Like the, the tone and the black and white is so harsh. Uh, it feels 
very like violent and like uh end times like throughout the whole course of the movie and this like screaming catholic priest in the background uh, all of it just like makes it feel like so grandiose and the love story and you know being in love yes. with the woman and i like how he breaks into her apartment when he's about to make a pivotal decision that would change his life and might get get him killed and she doesn't want to let him in and he breaks into her apartment and she she tells her tell me you love me and she doesn't want to say it and then he just you know takes her by force and kisses her and it was it was so sexy and I don't think could have been made today because of me too. And, you know, the conversations around sex and consent, but in that moment, it was so raw and so beautiful and so sexy. I'm absolutely fascinated by it. Yeah. The romance of this is really underrated and not talked about enough because all of the scenes with, um, you know, even Marie Saint as a, yeah. a, a Eddie, Edie, I don't remember. Yeah. Edie, yeah. <laughs> all of the scenes of them together, you watch this just explosive relationship that is a, a translation of, of the turmoil he's going on outside of their relationship. Like, the, the core of their love is uh, this enormous moral quandary he's in, and seeing him, like, work through it by, like, taking her by force and this, like, fiery passion... It, I feel so moved. <laughs> I wanted to be her in that moment. And uh, I feel like people are no longer inspired by their passions and love. Uh, you know, who else can you name in modern cinema that would, you know, completely change their life and, you know, have this moral trajectory for love? It was, obviously there were other factors that played into it, but I feel like his love for Eddie was one of the main reasons why he decided to do what she did no it's so true like that's exactly right like because i was thinking about this when i was re-watching it yesterday about like what's motivating him to ultimately make this moral choice and i was you know wondering if it was really about him you know self-actualizing um in terms of his own failures but really it is about like his passion for this woman like his fiery burning lust for this very sexy beautiful woman and his pursuit of her is actually like what does the moral work for him yes i feel like the change happens when they're at a bar drinking and you know he's about to leave to do some dirty work for the mob boss and um she starts crying she bursts into tears and he asks her what else can he do for her and she says not enough not enough not enough and she leaves and that what motivates him to have this you know to ask himself this question what am i doing where why am i doing what i'm doing is it moral and have this character development that uh you know uh, kind of like changes the course of his life yes because i think both of us understand that like if you open your heart to people you can really change the entire trajectory of your life and access these sublime levels of life that were would be inaccessible to you otherwise if you allow yourself to um, truly submit to your lust and passion and uh, interest and your carnal urges then you're going to be put on these enormous grandiose stages of life that are unparalleled by anything that most people are familiar with 
Yes. So I'm so glad you're saying it because I don't feel people are inspired by those passions anymore. You know, uh, I feel like before men used to conquer uh, countries and lands and write great poems and create great works of art for love, for passion, for being in this moment. And this is what happens to this character. She's so in love with this woman. She realizes that what she did to her brother was wrong, even though in the moment he probably, I'm sure he was tormented by it, but she is the one who makes him realize that he can do something about it, even though it could cost him dearly and he could be crucified for it. He's willing to go for it because of the passion and love he has for this beautiful woman. Yes, that's right, because uh, ultimately he's responsible for the not necessarily, but he plays a part in the death of of this uh, young woman's brother, and she goes on on a a moral mission to find out uh, what happened and bring truth to it. And seeing his his whole transformation with it, it all is about his passion for her. And there's the most moving scene, which I just I can't even get over when he confesses to her his role in this man's death. He has to surmount his anxiety and fear and tell her what he has to do with this. And it's this uh, end-of-the-world scene on the beaches of this uh, docking company as the horns are blaring. You can barely hear what they're saying, and it's cutting to their faces in these high angles, and you see his face moving in every single detail. I mean, I just can't get over how emotional that was for me. It was. And despite the fact that you don't know what they're saying, his face is so expressive. And, you know, you, you, it just, it moves you because just, just his facial expressions alone move you. And I think the second part to his moral journey was obviously that Cain and Abel's scene was his brother, where he thinks his brother is about to drive him to a certain death and he has this conversation and he pours his soul out to his brother for the first time I'm guessing because he usually was the one who was just take it and do what his brother told him uh, because he had this trust in him he pours his soul out and tells his brother that if it wasn't for him he could have been a great boxer he could have achieved something in life He he wouldn't have been a bum and his brother does something about it. He refuses to betray his brother. He risks his own life to let his brother go. And the sacrifice is another thing that makes him want to do what he did and, you know, have this, um, and, you know, create this moral arc where he decides to, he's willing to sacrifice himself for the right cause. Oh my God. It's so beautiful. Like, it's just so beautiful. I can't say anything else about it. I just, I'm moved. I think I'm almost in tears just like thinking about it right now. I mean, it's probably a little bit of the alcohol speaking, but to think about these people, these characters who have to give up everything to do what's right. And they're inspired to do what's right because of their mortal passions on earth. Oh my God. It wasn't the priest who made him do what he did because people like to think that moralizing works and, you know, this uh, this little speech that priests gave convinced them to do the right thing. It was it was his love for a woman and it was the beautiful sacrifice that his brother made to save his life that convinced them that the, doing the right thing was the best thing he could do, even though it could cost his, him his life and cost him his friendships and everything that he held dear until this day. I, I truly believe so. No, I completely think so. Especially when I was rewatching it this time, 
Um, obviously, this uh, religious element is is prevalent, but I don't think it's meant to be a sort of inspiration to him and what helps him change his mind. Instead, it's sort of like a moral framework for the audience so that they can kind of get a track on Brando as this Christ-like figure. And it's yeah. it's not about Brando's character as Terry Malloy changing because of hearing this religious testament. This is for the audience. And the truth of the matter is that he changes and makes this decision because of his passion. Yeah, because he, just like Stanley Kowalski, he's very earthy and he is, you know, uh, he's he's very human. And I don't think that just, you know, the priest convinced him to do the thing that he did. It was it was his passions. It was his love. It was his, uh, you know, seeing his own family member doing the right thing that convinced him to do what he did. The the, the reference to crucifixion is, was definitely for audience to kind of see him as this Christ-like figure. Absolutely. And it all climaxes in the end of the movie with Terry making his choice, um, being rejected from work because of it, and then getting brutally beaten um, for what he's done. And his sheer will to power inspires the entire laborers at this dock uh, to stand in in solidarity with him as he marches forward to uh, walk into the job and change reality. And it is honestly one of the most breathtaking moments in in film history is this last scene yeah and his beaten face you know bloody face you know so sexy so sexy i don't know what they did to his eyelids definitely something because i you know the makeup was great and he had this piercing eyes that break your heart in a thousand pieces in that moment beautiful and i like that it's in black and white which makes it even more um you know kind of makes it his performance even better and his face kind of stays in your memory forever no he it definitely does like the the beautiful contrast of black and white really does cement the feelings is infinitely more true and kazan does a bunch of really incredible things with the directing here where he puts the camera uh, directly in uh, Malloy's point of view and is is shaking upwards and despite having seen this movie multiple times like knowing he makes it to the end like every time I watch him as he's like dazed and beaten and walking forward and the camera is suddenly flying everywhere as it shows him struggling to move on every time you watch it you feel like he might not make it absolutely I actually yesterday while rewatching it I was completely convinced that he was not going to... And I watched that movie twice before, and I was completely convinced that he was not going to live and he was going to die and sacrifice himself for the for his fellow man. And he's just... it's Yeah, the, the directing choices are great as well. Uh, probably the best movie he ever made. Oh, my God. It's so true. It just... I... Uh, wish that everyone could manifest Marlon Brando walking in front of all of those dock workers to get to work and push aside all of the trite nonsense of their petty existences about politics and religion and all this crap and just live earnestly for their feelings and march forward in a bloodied state to create something worthwhile. 
absolutely and do the thing that you are you you want to do and screw the rest of the world and just be yourself and be motivated by your passions and love and desires and you know everything else and that would make the world a better place yes. i feel like if pe- people acted on their desires and passions and did the thing they wanted to do in the moment the world would have been so much better and humanity would have been lost like it is today well, and it's amazing because Marlon Brando really is like Terry Malloy. Like he like yeah. really has done that boat walk time and time again. Sashin Littlefeather is the exact same thing. When he was like when Terry <laughs> Malloy is marching in the dock, that is the same thing as when he put fucking Sashin Littlefeather up on the Oscars stage. Absolutely. Just a giant middle finger to the world that, you know, his hatred of authority kind of manifests itself in this role, you know, because he goes against authority. He goes against everything that he thought was important and uh, just does the right thing and saves his fellow man. That's right. So thinking about on the waterfront and the complete manifestation of your passion and actuality, when we move to Reflections in a Golden Eye from 1967, we definitely see the precise inverse of what happens when you reject those passions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, in, in Reflections in Golden Eye, he completely, you know, he represses his own passions, he represses his own self, you know, he's uneasy in his skin, he's completely alienated from his physical self, he's no longer himself, he's just, he's somebody else his entire life, he can't act on his passion towards this beautiful soldier that rides the horse naked, he is, um, he lives with a domineering and emasculating wife and he's completely unhappy and can't be himself. And that's a completely opposite to uh, Terry Malloy. No, it is completely opposite. And and uh, I literally cannot believe that this is a film made in 1967 and adapted from a novel from 1941 because um, it's shocking. It's like very sexually graphic for one. And the themes are so prescient that you would imagine that somebody uh, would have only been able to figure out all these neuroses like 30 years later but nonetheless here is this insane film yeah and it was insane even though 60s was kind of you know revolutionizing in terms of sexuality people were you know coming to terms with the fact that gay people exist and you know people are not always happy in their marriages and uh you know 50s white picket fence wives were not happy either because they were all you know on antidepressants and taking a bunch of stuff to even make sense of the world around them and their married lives so it was it was different but it's still even for that time the movie was still very scandalous very scandalous. Um, there is a fort in the South where a few years ago a murder was committed. And uh, th- this movie basically follows a uh, group of six characters uh, who live on a U.S. Army post in the South in the 40s. Um, two of those being Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor as a married couple, as well as a uh, sexually confused young private uh, who is constantly committing acts of voyeurism, riding horses naked, doing, you know, equus, um, a delusional a woman and her husband as she's constantly teetering on the edge of suicide and their effeminate uh, Filipino houseboy. And this whole movie, 
I don't even know where to start with it because it is just nuts. Uh, I would, my, I was my favorite scene in the scene in the beginning where like Brando just like exercises. He's very strained by the weight and, you know, he's, is is not himself. He's just fat and sweaty and bolding in a way, not the Brando that we knew uh, from, you know, Shit Carnet Desire and on the waterfront. And he's so uncomfortable in his own skin that you can see it in the way he approaches the mirror, looks at himself. He's obviously disgusted by what he sees, but there's still hope because he, he, he you know, he's hoping that there will be there, there still will be some muscle definition and he'll still look better after what he did but he doesn't and it's very sad and, and it's depressing it's very sad yeah it, this is like one of the opening shots virtually and uh, the, the, I mean I guess the first shot is we see these like big muscular virile horses and the young sexy man who tends them and then seeing Brando who is this icon of sexuality just be like out of shape and like sad like looking at himself in the mirror as this repressed homosexual who hates his wife lusts after these boys can't do anything about it is just like in suspended disanimation it is crushing it is completely opposite to the character in american beauty who was exercising and because he finally felt liberated from his oppressive wife and his oppressive marriage and the job that he hated and he could see happiness in his face. This is completely different because this man does it because he hates himself deeply. Yes, a gay man who exercises because he hates himself. Very prescient. Yes, very, uh, very um, Bronze Age perversity. <gasps> very that. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have yeah. thought? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, I obviously love Liz Taylor, and she is this beautiful, sexy, vulgar, glamorous woman. She's 35, I think, in this movie, and she's still absolutely gorgeous. And you can understand why the soldier would be so obsessed with her beauty that he would just spend nights by her bedside smelling her, uh, you know, her clothing and her perfumes absolutely beautiful woman was and her, her the scene of her in white dress at that party just completely drove me insane i oh me I was too obsessed. yeah because elizabeth taylor just eats this role up like she uh I, I find that a lot of times when you cast liz in something she can be quite the tornado and she can kind of eat the whole movie um yeah. but she's perfectly cast here because that kind of level of like deranged uh, sexuality and, and sensual femininity, it all comes across as very naturalistic for this world, and your eye is, is totally drawn to her. And I am so glad you mentioned her in that white dress because I paused the movie to, like, gasp at that. They don't make them like that anymore. Like, I feel like when you look at actresses from the past, they all have very remarkable faces and they're very glamorous and their beauty's unmatched and it kind of you know stays in your memory forever. Nowadays it's like everybody looks like Amy Adams who mm -hmm. if, if I ran into on the street I probably would not recognize. I, I, she's a great actress but like very boring looking and then there's Liz who is goddess-like in the entire movie and she's you know you can see how her beauty her beauty was very oppressive to her husband because you know even that scene when she strips naked just to, to to taunt him and he drives him insane because 
you know, he's not, he's not moved by it, but she's doing it. It's just, yes, because the, I mean, even me as a gay man and and you as a woman, like we both can objectively see that Elizabeth Taylor is like the most beautiful object in the world here. And when she decides to do this like sadistic ritual against him by like stripping uh, and then walking nude up the stairs, uh, taunting him to do anything to her, which he's incapable of, it makes so much sense because like she's so beautiful. I would want to be able to do something and to not be able to, oh my God, tragic. Yeah. Yes. And the anger on his face, it all makes sense, you know? Um, and yeah, she's very emasculating and domineering, which is something I can definitely relate to. But, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. but she's also not introspective enough to realize how bad her life is. You know, which something is very tragic about it because she just oh, drinks. Yeah, because the, it, she's portrayed very tragically. And when you like see her like organizing her dumb little party and like doing like these like silly like girly rituals uh none of it is consequential at all and you feel definitely like this really gross kind of sadness whenever uh she's like talking about her actual life yes and you know and she's completely opposite to uh you know um the wife of uh, Morris, who is, you know, completely aware of how much her life sucks and how miserable she is. And, you know, she's completely broken by it in a way that uh, Elizabeth Taylor's character cannot be because she's simply not introspective enough. Yeah, it's very interesting that this was like quite close to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, where we see like mm-hmm. the precise opposite, like hyper aware uh, woman who is... Uh, extraordinarily cognizant of every single problem in uh their relationship and then seeing this like foolish woman who uh just like recklessly wields her sexuality and then uh you know doesn't have any idea of actually the fact that she's suffering through so much of this is very special yeah women like that i know few in my real life and they don't age well not physically but they don't take rejection well in their old age and it's very sad to watch them yeah i can definitely see that happening um there's there's like so many micro relationships going on in this movie and it's also very slow paced and and scenes take forever it's like less than two hours but it feels like five um yeah and you see, like, all of these very aching, like, tragic, broken relationships between people. And, like, the Liz Taylor one with everyone, one of the most, like, horrific, like, set of relationships in this movie is um, the uh, the tragic uh, suicidal wife and her Filipino houseboy, like, Ancoletto. I just found that to be really disgusting. It was, and the acting on the Filipino actors' part was so bad. Oh, I, I know. It's, it's so camp. <laughs> I think it's the first and last role he did. And, um, you know, just him being there, uh, completely playing in all her craziness and supporting it, even though it's very destructive for her health and being. And she has this good sensitive husband i i feel like morris is probably the character the audience can most relate to mm-hmm. because he's a good man who does the wrong, wrong thing and by the end of the movie he realizes how 
that the choices he made were and then this this destroys his wife uh, but yeah the relationship with the filipino character is absolutely crazy oh it's so repulsive i just i hate whenever he's on screen because he's like this um like castrated like like tranny basically it's like, like, <laughs> like, like it's like this like little like transgender like little like boy doll that she like kind of like dotes upon and like goes to for advice and is like planning to run away with and um <laughs> this movie has nothing but apocalyptic endings for gay people because you either end up like marlon brando in this role or you end up like the filipino like being like some doting little object for like a horrible it, woman he's like an accessory to her it's like very sex in the city where all those like women had like a gay man by their side who was a like, kind of like an accessory they carry that they turn to one they have problems and they want to complain about something it's very it's similar dynamic she's just not a powerful strong new york woman she's broken um broken wife of a man yeah can you imagine being like the tragic like homosexual for like for like this woman like i would be happy to be a tragic homosexual for like dasha or anna or you but like to be like that like really sad woman and like her like boring suicidal tendencies is just so gross it was repulsive yeah because i mean i you know i i don't obviously don't think that it's good to like to have this type of like accessory relationship i i think everybody you know um should have like uh should be on an equal footing but in this case it's like you are an accessory to this broken sad woman who cuts off her nipples uh when she's depressed <laughs> what is happening yeah there's like a perfume genius song from his album uh too bright called fool where he just is like talking about like bleeding out on a couch for like some woman who like he like interior designed their house for and i couldn't like stop thinking about that during uh, all of his scenes and he paints a picture of a peacock uh, that has the entire world in its eye, which is the, the quote, reflections in a golden eye of the movie. And um, that warped, morbid peacock, like seeing the world as a bunch of like frayed, ugly colors, makes a lot of sense with this movie and its worldview. Yeah, it's somewhat of a detached observer that looks at the entire that life of those broken, miserable people. Um, and um, I, I, one thing that I loved about the movie is the amber color that they used in a lot of scenes. Kind of like amber and gold uh, makes it really beautiful. Yeah, it makes it feel like very like gelid and uh, tragic. And so you're seeing this kind of like gilded image of uh, these people and understanding that like their trite little relationships with each other are actually much more meaningful than... Uh, what you what you're seeing and it, it does feel very cosmic because of the tone and these like long aching shots that last forever you really do feel like you're looking at like the state of humanity in a microcosm there are a few scenes that were so that drew me in so much that i couldn't like i couldn't take my eyes off screens one of the scenes is when brando is riding his horse and the horse goes wild and he might die in that scene it was so uh, magnetic and the performance was great and the scene itself you know the shot was long and it was I couldn't stop looking at my screen I, it was amazing 
I know, I was thinking the exact same thing, because, like, uh, when he gets dragged by his horse and is, like, being, like, dragged, like, through all these, like, bushes and getting, like, kicked in the face, it goes on for quite a while, and you end up realizing that it's, like, this horse is, like, his uh, mouth-shaped, you know, disastrous homosexual desires that he's just, like, being raped through life by. Yeah, and you can the anger that it wasn't the anger I don't think was directed at the horse itself, but at his own repressed sexuality. He can never be honest with the world about who he are. And he wants to project that image of, an, of a leader, you know, a strong man. He always talks about it in his lectures, but in reality, he's just a broken man living in this life with a wife who, you know, completely dominates him and treats him like shit. And, you know, he's obsessed with the soldier and he can never act on his passions. And that scene kind of captures all of it. Yeah, because he's just being ripped through life by his desires that he refuses to act upon. And so when you like see him getting dragged by that horse and then reacting by beating the shit out of the horse with a branch. Oh, my God. It makes so much sense. It's really depressing. And it's so crazy that when he passes by, you know, well, passes by that soldier being completely nude in the forest, and that's he manages to notice him despite the fact that he's about to die, and the speed that, uh, despite the speed that horse carries him with, he still notices him, and the same soldier takes the horse away from him um, when he's about to kill it in a fit of rage. Yeah, this movie completely understands the mania of of real homosexual desire where you're just dragged along through your whole life being whipped through the bushes and then no matter how much you try to punish your desires, there's always going to be some beautiful naked soldier to whisk the horse away. (laughs) Absolutely. And um, yeah, and and he breaks down in tears, which... Brando crying oh every time crushes me me every too time. because he is this he has this strong beautiful face of a stoic man and then he breaks into tears and allows himself to be vulnerable and it just breaks your heart i don't think anyone can do that to me except brando i know it's so it's so tragic um this whole movie, I just, you know, I wish that I knew, like, this character in reality because he's so sexy. I mean, he like he's, like, supposed to be, like, fat and ugly and, like, tragic or whatever. But the whole time, I was like, oh, my God, you're so hot. Like, come over here. I'm like, I'll save you from Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And imagine, like, um, I feel like marriage is like that probably worked sometimes in the past where the wife was not as domineering and, you know, emasculating as Elizabeth Taylor and a husband could actually act on his passions, you know, probably under the radar, meeting people in the dark. But in this case, it was just the combination of Elizabeth Taylor being who she is in this movie and him being so ashamed of his sexuality and so uncomfortable in his skin that he wasn't able to act on his desires ever. And he's also taunt, uh, you know, haunted by this image of a naked soldier on a horse. And it's, it's probably the emotions he, he felt are, are, you know, are insane. Well, yeah, because like 
the idea of this, like, virile, like, young uh, soldier on a horse is, like, so sexually imbued that every single time he encounters it, he's not just touching his own desire, but he's also feeling, like, this longing and regret for his own past and failed potential. And that's kind of, like, where I feel this, like, tying in with On the Waterfront, because in On the Waterfront, we see him actually being able to manifest his desires into something worthwhile, but this is the consequence of if he had never been able to. Yeah, Terry Malloy runs into the house of a woman he loves, breaks into her apartment and takes her by force, acts on his desires, and that liberates him in a way that this character is not able to. And he's also fascinated with his soldier, not only because he's beautiful, which is probably was definitely part of it but also because he's able to be free like him watching him completely being liberated naked on a horse drives him insane because that's something that he can never do that's right he can never do it and um i i really love the lecture scenes that he does where he's like trying to describe like masculine leaders and it's just like a bunch of like men like looking very disinterested in in him as he like kind of like fails and sputters through the lectures with his like faggot southern accent (laughs) and i actually had to had uh subtitles on the whole movie because he mumbles even harder than usual i did too and his accent is, like, so heavy and indiscernible in this movie. Like, after 20 minutes, I was like, okay, I'm going to need to read something here. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't understand the word he was saying. I heard rummel, and I was like, oh, are we are we talking Nazis now? <laughs> and um, I also, like, the scene where Elizabeth Taylor beats him in front of... <gasps> when she whips him with the horse whip. Oh my, that was so powerful. And he just stands there and doesn't do anything. And then they cut to the, you know, the scene between Filipino uh, Chani and uh, that sad, tragic woman. And she asked, did he do anything? And he's <laughs> like, no, she just stood there. And it probably was pro- the most emasculating, you know, thing in his existence. And he still has to go back to the soldiers and give a lecture about the importance of leadership. And uh, it's crazy. Oh, it's just fucking brutal. And that whipping scene is, I just can't believe that was in film. Like, (laughs) oh my God. It's like so, I'm just so glad I live in a reality where there is like a three minute scene of Elizabeth Taylor beating the shit out of Marlon Brando with a horse crop. And he just stands there like not doing anything. Beautiful. Absolutely. Oh, I I thought it was so sexy too. Yeah. Yeah. I want to fucking hit Marlon Brando with a horse crop too. Yeah, and like them can just like turn around and like rape you in the dark, and you just completely submit to his will because he's Brando. Yeah, because at the end of the movie, when this little naked soldier voyeur comes in <laughs> once again, Marlon Brando thinks it's finally gonna be for him, and he's finally gonna get what he wants. But of course, the beautiful like Mishima soldier goes into uh, Liz's room as usual. And uh, he shoots him and ends his life. And it ends with this horrific sequence of screaming as the camera flies between their faces. And it's like this total climax for what happens when you don't act on your desires. It's like miserable, like death terror. Yes, for both of them, because the soldier also refused to act on his desires. He was just a little creep and stalker, according to, and he wasn't free too. 
because like in the beginning Madeline is so fascinated by him because he thinks he's free and he thinks he's liberated but he was also suppressing his desire for this beautiful woman his this entire movie and I'm sure if he acted on it he probably wouldn't have been rejected mm, I think so too um I just I just find that this whole last sequence to be really like the final piece in the puzzle it's like if you reject your desires for your entire life and you yeah. constantly put little walls of philosophy and religion and critical thinking around yourself and ignore your libido, then yeah. you're going to end with a dead guy on the floor and a bunch of people like screaming as the world ends. And it's so great because usually like modern cinema punishes uh, people for being men for being horny like you always have those horny characters tragically dying and even in white lotus you know the horniest hotel manager is punished for acting on his desires and having sex with this beautiful uh boy that works for him and then this movie it's completely the opposite people are being punishing punished for not acting on their desires and depressing they are and not being comfortable in their skin I actually thought of White Lotus as well because they both have that very like severe moral ending, but you're so right that this is totally the opposite. Like if these characters had embraced their, their, you know, on the waterfront, Terry Malloy, like desires more seriously then um, the movie could have ended with Marlon Brando naked on the horse with that young little soldier, but it just, and I can't overstate this. Like that screaming at the end is just unlike anything I've ever seen. Yes. And the thing is, by the end of the movie, Brando's character is ready to embrace who they are. He has this little monologue, um, you know, that shocks even Liz, who is usually, you know, completely oblivious to her husband's desires and the world around her, where he, you know, they discuss the Filipino shanty. Uh, I'll just keep calling him that. And It's, it's uh, most he, convenient and most true. <laughs> yeah. And, and Morris's character, who is this, you know, he's kind man but very old-fashioned kind of says oh if only he was in the army with us we could have changed him he wouldn't be this you know acting this way and dancing to classical music like a fool and then brandy gives this little speech about um, normality and how you know fulfillment obtained at the expense of normality is wrong and then he's asked if he disagrees with it and he says yes so he kind of he's almost there he's on the verge of becoming who he are and embracing his true sexuality and then just tragic death happens yeah because as soon as he's rejected that one final time by the soldier when he goes into liz's room instead of his there there's nothing to be done and the punishment is sealed and he's stuck in his circle of hell forever Yes. Uh, did you think that the fascination that soldier had was Liz was a uh, true het- um, heterosexual nature or it was something tranny-esque to it? I thought as well. I also kind of had like that there's like a leering desire to like want to be her because yes. we never see him like jerking off or like being like really like sexually turned on and especially the first time that he like voyeurs them uh when it kind of like cuts to his horrifying freakish eye that has yeah. everything inside of it you don't feel like he's uh consuming it for a sexual nature but rather like one of manifestation 
yes, I feel like he wanted to be her. And he watches them both because he catches Brando when he's mumbling in front of the mirror, trying to rehearse his speech that he's going to give in front of the soldiers. And he watched him masturbate to them, to the picture of some beefcake, whatever, you know, not really masturbate, but just look at that image. And then he looks at her. (laughs) Yeah. And he looks at her being beautiful and desirable, walking up the stairs naked. And I feel like in that moment, she wanted to be her. And he smells her perfume. He tries to smell her clothing. It was not, I don't think it was sexual, but I could be wrong. I think, you know, in the way that, you know, all transgenderism is like vaguely sexual in one way or another, you know, I think that it definitely might be a little bit. But yeah, it really is about him also. Like, I feel like for, you know, beautiful boys like him, there is a lot of uh, tumultuous drama about being desired and uh because for men it's very different like like you said earlier like women know like yeah how to be desired and like what that means but it's very confusing for men so i imagine maybe it would have just been more convenient for him if he could have been a woman and then if, if he could have just been seen as a woman then he could have been with marlon brando and they could have gone on that damn horse and rode away <laughs> exactly yeah, the world punishes beautiful men and you know we discussed it earlier that like people assume that beautiful men are narcissistic and mean and cruel but they're really not they're so vulnerable and sweet and kind and insecure and uncomfortable in their own skins skin is it's almost like they're sorry for being so beautiful because the world is not really accepting of beautiful men yeah absolutely um one other thing I have to say, especially about that last scene, is that um, there's a, a fabulous score here, who, which is done by uh, Mayuzumi Toshiro, who uh, also did a, a Mishima adaptation called Thirst for Love and uh, Tokyo mm-hmm. Olympiad and a bunch of really great stuff. And uh, I, I love his s- screaming manic soundtrack in this movie. Yeah, the soundtrack is great. And yeah, the last scene is so horrifying, you know, and it cuts to, uh, you know, the beginning of the book itself. It's, it's yeah, it's absolutely crazy. There is a fort in the South where a few years ago a murder was committed. <laughs> yeah. <gasps> oh, Amazing. God. And then she screams and her lover breaks into the room. And that's after they tr- she tried to have sex with them on his dead wife's bed, which is also disgusting. But that's that's who the character is. That's right. So looking back on this kind of melodramatic, like, camp trash nightmare uh, and on the waterfront and the life of Marlon Brando in general... Um, as I'm re-philosophizing the universe and giving birth to a new reality, uh, what what do you think we should take from all of this moving forward? Um, just people need to, need to start being passionate and horny and love again. You know, something that we were discussing earlier was you know Jack posting it like tweeting about Lana and why she inspires such devotion and it's because she talks about things like beauty and love and passion and something we completely forgot as humanity you know how to do we're very pragmatic even the discussions about how to fix the world around us revolve around like why don't we just get married and like be together only for procreation or you know you need to um you need to, you know, never get married because it's oppressive. When what people actually need to do is just be passionate again, act on their passions, be inspired by their desires, and you know, fulfill their true destiny by by being inspired by beauty, love, sex, passion, and things like that. 
I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> yeah, it's just like I feel like we're lost as humanity. And I just actually I recently finished reading a while back and the possibility on an island. And he so greatly puts it that humanity is lost because we forgot how to love, you know. Um, and we need to be in love every day of our lives. We have to be in love every day of our lives. We have to be Marlon Brando and accept that doing that kind of love and committing your whole life to passion will inevitably be painful and lead to horror and, and drama. But any of, of, of that nightmare you have to go through is, is infinitely more sublime and rewarding and life-affirming than the purgatory of reflections in a golden eye you get stuck in for repressing yourself absolutely yeah you are it's so great that you said that and it's so important to be said over and over again because what people tell you from all sides is that you need to be punished for uh being horny or being passionate or or like the entire society wants you to punish for those things it was me too and you know those sexless women who hate men in general and then the society itself wants to punish men for just being and then there's brando who was driven to insanity by his passions and he's so inspiring in doing so